Hi, this is Stuart Weems and welcome to the Investopoly podcast. My goal is to give you simple, easy to understand strategies, insights and tips to help you master the game of building wealth. And in this episode, I'd like to give you a little bit of an update in regards to the lending market, particularly some substantial changes in borrowing capacity improvements, but also a little bit of commentary about interest rates, both variable and fixed while I'm here, while I'm at it. Uh, as by way of a bit of background, um, in 2009, the government rewrote the the laws that govern the provision of loans um, to try and tighten up regulations to make sure that you know banks and brokers weren't giving loans to people that clearly couldn't afford it. Um, and uh, certainly, we saw a lot of those stories uh, during the Royal Commission uh, in 2018 and 2019. Uh, and the test was that you know borrowers uh, and banks were sorry banks and brokers were not allowed uh, to provide loans that were not unsuitable. So a pretty low bar in terms of definition. Um, but despite that, uh, whilst the the laws in two thousand nine started uh, relatively weak, I would describe them as um, the ASIC has gradually sort of been tightening those rules and regulations, and they do that by releasing regulation guides uh, that, that uh, banks and brokers must comply with. Um, and, uh, and that's been occurring uh, gradually over that period of time, nearly the last 10 years, but particularly the last two or three years, some substantial, substantial tightening uh, had been, uh, has been made. Uh, and in October, I, I, I look back in some of my tweets that I've posted on Twitter and in October 19, I compared the loan application uh, process to a uh, almost a forensic criminal investigation uh, where the applicant is assumed to be um, uh, guilty until proven innocent. And, uh, and whilst that might seem like a, a very exaggeration, exaggerated assessment of the loan application f- process, that is in fact correct. You know, we, we're seeing lenders you know, trawl over bank statements and start questioning sort of $20 um, uh, expenses and, you know, really, really going through it with a fine-tooth comb as if you are trying to commit fraud and they're trying to find the the fraud that you're trying to commit. It's ridiculous uh, and it needs to needs to be changed. Um, and uh, one of the probably most uh, significant events that are leading, that led up to uh, the Treasurer's announcement on Friday, which I'll get to, uh, was that uh, Westpac um, won a case against ASIC. Well, in fact, ASIC initiated the case, uh, alleging non-compliance with credit laws because what Westpac did is, instead of asked uh, about an applicant's expenses, they made some assumptions, so they used some benchmark uh, expenses. Uh, and ASIC alleged that they really didn't fulfil their... Uh, legal obligation by not asking about a um, uh, an applicant's you know, how much is the applicant actually spending on living expenses, and um, and this uh, and uh, ASIC lost, uh, and then they took it to the court of appeal and they lost the appeal. So Westpac was found to have not breached the laws, and this uh, judgment, this case is now called the Wagyu and Shiraz case because. The justice uh, that presided over the appeal said, and I quote, I might eat Wagyu beef every day, washed down with the finest Shiraz, but if I really want a new home, uh, I can make, mu- make do on much more modest fare. 
And his uh, viewpoint, you know, he went in on to explain during that judgment, his viewpoint was that my current expenditure patterns don't really inform the lender as to my ability uh, to take on and service additional debt. Um, and I would, I would agree, you know, for most people and certainly every single one of our clients, uh, when, when faced with the decision to either go out uh, to dinner or make a mortgage repayment, every single uh, one of our clients is going to make the right decision. And, and it's ridiculous to think that people are going to prioritise, you know, discretionary expenditure over um, meeting uh, financial commitments and to some degree, you know, a high level of discretionary expenditure is is arguably very strong evidence that someone has surplus cash flow that they could otherwise divert towards repayment. So if I'm going out and spending, I don't know, $5,000 a month on just dining, uh, clearly I'm, sh- I'm demonstrating to a-, a bank that I've got that capacity. Um, the upshot is, though, that over the last few years, ASIC's guidance around these... Um, Responsible lending uh, laws have resulted in nearly 100 pages of of guidance, and it's become a very bureaucratic, inflexible kind of one-size-fits-all approach, and that creates um, undue complexity, um, massive delays in getting loans approved, uh, avoidable costs because it's it's so laborious, uh, and sometimes... Uh, it results in very perverse uh, outcomes or loan assessments, uh, loan assessments that don't really have any relationship with common sense and no one really wins. So um, Josh Frydenberg on Friday made an announcement that the government seeks to change the laws uh, and move some of the responsibility from the lender onto the borrower. And so the main change that the government has proposed is that lenders will be allowed to rely on information provided by the borrower uh, unless there's reasonable grounds to suspect that information is, in fact, unreliable. So this means that the bank can ask you about your living expenses and, in most situations, rely on your answer. Uh, This avoids them having to trawl through your bank statements, which is kind of good news, uh, which they have to do now. Um, And when formulating the answer that you provide them in terms of how much do you spend, you can give consideration to what your base level of expenses are. So that is, you know, what are your true expenses excluding discretionary uh, expenses? Because I suggest that would best reflect your ability to be able to take on additional debt. In the main, that's going to result in, uh, I think, uh, more reasonable, rational and logical decision making. Uh, and also expedite the loan approval process as well, uh, sort of fast-track it a little bit compared to what it's been. In addition, that Wagyu and Shiraz judgment uh, also confirms it's acceptable for banks to use benchmark expenses. Uh, and if we have a think about you know, the amount of data that banks have, uh, and I know they release some of that data through their economic analysis um, in terms of what people are spending on and what categories and levels and so forth, they have so much data that surely they can uh, arrive at reasonably substantiated benchmark expenses for different categories of borrowers. Uh, and that data is going to help them, uh, again, uh, with the, that sort of loan uh, approval process. Now, the, these changes that uh, Josh Feidenberg announced last Friday uh, have attracted some uh, criticism. And the main concern is that, you know, people don't want uh, or commentators don't want 
banks going back to how they were behaving uh, in a in a pre royal commission scenario where uh, both banks and some brokers were giving loans to people that clearly couldn't afford it. Uh, it's my view that uh, legislation should never be relaxed back to sort of pre-2009 levels, that the governance and oversight was just way too lax and, um, you know, really uh, lent itself to uh, very greedy commission-based um, brokers and uh, and lenders to really shove additional lending down people's throats that weren't in a position to afford it. So that should never be repeated. But conversely, the the current form of legislation and regulation is far too restrictive. It's ridiculous. Uh, and, you know, certainly as the government has described it as a one-size-fits-all approach is insane. You know, you need to have a different uh, credit appraisal approach to, for someone that's earning, say, $50,000 a year to someone that's earning a million dollars a year. You know, in a lot of situations, it's two very different uh, levels of borrowers and risk and, and so forth. Uh, and so it's, in, it's very important that uh, we find a balance somewhere in between where legislation is today and where it was uh, nearly 10 years ago. Uh, the true, I think, uh, sustainable level is somewhere in between that. Uh, and, and mortgage brokers now have a best interest duty. That is, they must act in their best interest of their clients, uh, which is a, a, a no-brainer. I mean, it should have been brought in almost when the mortgage broker industry started 20 years ago. Um, of course, brokers should act in their best interest of their clients. So that is a, a very basic uh, duty as far as I'm concerned. Um, and, uh, you know, you need to think about even situations where you've got clients that might be, uh, say, income poor but asset rich. You know, imagine a, a borrower with $10 million of property, $5 million bucks in the bank, uh, and they're asking for a million-dollar loan. I mean, almost irrespective of that person's income and expenses, uh, most people would agree that it's a pretty low risk uh, in order to approve uh, a million-dollar loan in that circumstance. Uh, well, as the current legislation uh, rests, uh, that person would not be able to borrow, uh, which doesn't make a whole lot of sense, right? Uh, whilst uh, these changes won't come into effect until after 1 March 2021, uh, or that, that's at the earliest, uh, and lenders haven't really responded to these uh, changes yet. Of course, they only uh, occurred a couple of days ago. So it's really difficult to ascertain what impact it might have. Um, but I've done some calculations and some analysis on this. And to me, uh, of course, it depends on the lender, it depends on the borrowing circumstances and so forth. Uh, but the upshot of this is it could increase a borrower's capacity by 20 to 30%. So, you know, if your borrowing capacity is at 800, uh, maybe that'll be pushed out to a million or north of a million dollars. Uh, and in that that scenario, we could be uh, in a situation where someone today can afford to go and buy an investment-grade apartment, but if they wait until these changes are enacted, uh, they move out into an investment-grade house uh, price point. Uh, and from an investment perspective and a risk profile perspective, you know, that is a very attractive um, outcome. Uh, so the other, the other consequence of this is that um, it will increase the flow of money supply into the property market. Uh, and we know that there is a very strong and observable positive relationship between money supply and price growth. 
So it's common sense, right? When a lot of money is flowing into that market, that's, that is indicative of a high level of demand for property, uh, and therefore we see price appreciation. So these changes to the credit laws um, will have an effect of increasing property prices over time. So for existing property investors, it is very much a case of it being uh, good news. Uh, so that's the change in respect to borrowing capacity. Let me talk about interest rates. Uh, let me talk firstly about variable interest rates, and then I'll talk about fixed rates too. Uh, well, with respect to variable interest rates, you may or may not have seen uh, commentary more recently, particularly over the last week or so, about the prospect of the RBA cutting rates again. Uh, the cash rate is currently a quarter of a percent, uh, and uh, some commentators are thinking that the RBA might uh, slash rates by 15 points down to 0.1 of a percent. Uh, and uh, whilst this might sound like good news uh, for borrowers, for mortgage holders, uh, I really don't think it's going to be uh, very material at all. The main reason why the RBA wants to cut the cash rate isn't to reduce borrowing costs for retail borrowers, you and me. It's really to reduce the government's cost of funds. Uh, so the government issued some bonds recently, 10-year bonds at 1%, circa 1%. That's their borrowing cost. Uh, the RBA would like to, it seems like the RBA would like to get that down to closer to half a percent. And the reason for that is that the government will release its budget next week uh, and that budget will almost certainly be funded, uh, the budget deficit will almost certainly be funded via increase in government debt. Uh, and the RBA wants to make sure that uh, the government is in a position to be able to do that, to stimulate the economy to get inflation uh, back to its normalised level uh, and also it needs to make sure that the Australian government is competitive with other governments. Other governments around the world are able to borrow at, at near zero interest rates uh, and if, um, if Australia's interest rate stays at 1% or above it's at almost a, a disadvantage from a global perspective. Um, so decreasing the cash rate is one way to do that um, and uh, maybe uh, implementing some quantitative easing, uh, issuing of bonds and so forth in order to lower that cost. Uh, that's another way to do it as well. Um, but most of the rhetoric around any interest rate changes from the RBA are more aimed at reducing the government's cost of debt rather than mortgage holders. Uh, I think uh, if they do decrease rates, what's the probability of the banks passing on? Well, I think there might be some chance uh, in respect to interest-only investment loans because they tend to attract much higher interest rates than, say, P&I home loans. Uh, I think that there's almost zero chance of a P&I principal interest home loan interest rate reducing as a result of an RBA reduction, but it's possible they might pass on some of that reduction to uh, interest-only investment borrowers, particularly if the banks are keen also to increase their investment lending uh, particularly in light of uh, Josh Frydenberg's uh, changes. So the upshot is really variable interest rates, no major changes. I, I wouldn't be banking on any sort of major changes in that space. And lastly, I want to talk about fixed interest rates because for the first time in nearly more than 20 years, in fact, I've fixed some of my personal mortgages. And historically, I've not been a fan of fixed interest rates, mainly because I've wanted to always maintain my flexibility You know, as an active investor, I refinance my loans every sort of two to three years, which I've previously discussed in, in this podcast. 
There's a chart that I drew for my latest book, Rules of the Lending Game, which I pasted on the blog on the website, and there'll be a link in the show notes as well, of course. Uh, and it demonstrates that on in the main, if we have a look back over the last 20 years, fixed rate borrowers have been uh, much worse off from a financial perspective. So typically, fixing your rate is kind of a bet against the market, uh, and uh, that doesn't doesn't typically work out. However, this time is different. This time is different because we know what the variable interest rate floor is. We know that variable interest rates almost certainly can't fall below current levels. So we kind of know what is the minimum we'll be paying on a variable interest rate basis over the next three years. And it just makes the comparison then between fixed and variable much easier if you know what the variable interest rate is going to do. If we know that the variable interest rate is higher than the fixed rate, and there's very little chance of that variable interest rate reducing over three years, then it's a no-brainer. Fixing for three years is going to save you money. Uh, And when we have a look at the uh, differential, interest rate differential, for three-year interest rates on on a home loan basis, on a principal interest home loan basis, fixed rates are typically between 0.3, so a third and a half of a percent uh, below um, variable rates. Uh, and uh, it's even more stark with when res- with respect to interest on the investment loans between 0.5 and 0.8 of a percent lower than current variable rates. So that's your saving. Your, that's how much you will save over the next three years if you potentially look at um, uh, fixing some of your interest rates. Now, of course, there's some very good reasons to not fix. Um, so preserving your ability to make uh, pretty aggressive principal repayments o- onto your loan if you plan to sell a property uh, to retain an offset because you can't have an offset against a a fixed rate loan. Uh, And there's a few more reasons to not fix. So, of course, before you jump onto the bandwagon, I suggest you get some advice in respect to that. But So there you go. There's a couple of really important um, uh, outcomes uh, that are either going to affect people that currently invest in property or people that are considering investing in property over the next 12 months. You know, the combination of uh, converting your current debt onto a fixed rate uh, and then waiting for the changes uh, to responsible lending uh, laws to be rolled out in March or after March next year um, could result in some positive outcomes for people uh, in terms of extending their ability to invest in property uh, and also uh, stimulating uh, price growth in the property market per se as well. So, some good outcomes and some good news in a year that really hasn't had a lot of good news, let's be honest. Okay, so uh, of course, as always, if you do enjoy my podcast, it would be great to share it amongst your friends and family or anyone that you think uh, might get some value out of listening in. Uh, The more the merrier. Uh, And until next week, bye for now.